With some 57% of jobs around the world at risk of being displaced by automation, some members of the tech community think giving people money for free, no strings attached, might be the only way to make the economy work moving forward. But what do the employees who are at risk of being displaced actually think? This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. Simply going to work to survive is not enough. It certainly is a different America. There's opportunities here that yes. are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to Work in Progress, a LinkedIn podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, senior editor Caroline Fairchild, covering tech and startups for LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn managing editor Chip Cutter. I'm spending this year on the road talking to people about what it means to earn a living now. On this week's episode, we're talking about universal basic income, that buzz-filled solution to the future of work that is having a bit of a moment right now. But what exactly is universal basic income? That's actually a good question because there are a lot of different sort of forms of it out there. That's Elizabeth Rhodes, the Universal Basic Income Research Director for startup accelerator Y Combinator. In this purest form, a universal basic income would be you know, set at some amount that would ideally meet people's basic needs and it would be universal. So regardless of income, everyone would receive it. However, in practice, in order to pay for it, it would basically be taxed back. So the idea that everyone is getting this amount of money, it is a universal entitlement, but at some income amount, it would basically fade out. A lot of people in the tech community think universal basic income might provide a solution for how the economy continues to grow in a future where fewer and fewer of us have actual jobs. Folks like Sam Altman, the head of Y Combinator, are hiring researchers like Elizabeth, who is running a test pilot right now in Oakland, where they're giving about $1,000 a month to participants to see how universal basic income could help today's working poor. Caroline, you've seen everyone from Elon Musk to others really get behind this idea. And we'll talk a little bit more with Elizabeth later in the show. But what I can't get past is just how excited people in tech are about this. Recently, I was at the TED conference in Vancouver, where not one but two talks addressed UBI. And each of them ended with a standing ovation from the crowd of celebrities and CEOs and entrepreneurs that were in the audience. One person on stage called this venture capital for the people. And you just saw people really just embrace that idea. It seems like a lot of excitement around a concept that we really, to this point, have no idea what it could really mean for the economy. But I'm assuming the frontline workers you're talking to around the country, Chip, the ones who actually have the most to gain, theoretically, from universal basic income, that they're just as excited? Well, what's interesting is that they feel the exact opposite. They're, they're not excited by this. A number of people told me that they feel that this seems anti-American. Here's Emily Schwichtenberg. She's a recent graduate who lives in Seattle. It's kind of just socialism, which looks extremely wonderful on paper. Don't get me wrong. Like, I would love to be involved in that. But I think that our country is so invested in capitalism. Like, we are proud of it. That's our one thing. We will all die before capitalism dies. And I heard a similar sentiment from workers across the country that you just mentioned this idea and they have an immediate kind of gut opposition to this. So we have members of the tech community saying that this could be the answer to all of our problems. And then we have workers on the ground saying that this idea is fundamentally anti-American. 
How are we ever going to be able to bridge that divide as a country? That's really the question I hope we get to today, because I do think that people really are putting a lot of thought into this. They say this solution needs to be explored, particularly as the economy changes in ways that we may not have experienced in the past. So UBI sounds good on paper, but I really want to know, could it actually work? Our first guest this week is doing more than looking at this concept on paper, so perhaps he'll have some answers. Michael Fay is the co-founder of Give Directly, a nonprofit experimenting with new ways to give money from donors directly to the poor. Give Directly recently launched a project specific to universal basic income where they're granting unconditional cash transfers at regular intervals to villagers in Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda. Michael, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Thanks so much for having me. You first started thinking about this idea many years ago when you were a graduate student at Harvard. Where are we with this idea today, and how is that different from the original idea you had for this organization? So we started Give Directly in graduate school with a basic realization and learning, really, which is that giving people cash was probably one of the most effective ways of helping them. And that goes against a lot of conventional wisdom, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime, give him a fish, feed him for a day, and so on. And the evidence shows the opposite that we're quite bad at doing training programs. But when you give capital and put the capital into the hands of the poor, they don't work less. They invest it productively. Universal basic income is a special form of cash transfer. It's untargeted in the sense that everybody in a location gets. Uh, It's for a long period of time, so it's an income, and it's sufficient to meet basic needs. The world has never done a long-term universal basic income. And that's precisely what we're doing in Kenya now. What are the lessons that you're hoping to transfer from that pilot to what universal basic income could mean for the U.S.? Well, I think there are a lot of questions we all have about universal basic income. How does it change where people spend their time? What does it do to consumption? What does it do to income? What does it do to the service provision of the area? Does the quality of education or healthcare improve as a result of people having more capital? Now, some of these lessons will be general, and some of them will be location-specific. And until we start testing it, not just in Kenya, but in multiple locations, we really won't know which is which. And this won't be the first time that we've looked to the emerging markets to learn. New York City did a large conditional cash transfer program under Mayor Bloomberg. That program derived and was inspired by the conditional cash programs of Mexico and Brazil. So in the same way that we've brought those lessons to New York City, I imagine we'll bring many of the lessons to the U.S. and other countries that are currently debating a universal basic income. Right. And a vast majority of aid, 94 percent, in fact, to impoverished nations is non-cash right now. So why do we have this inversion to giving the poor money and letting them decide the best way to spend it? We've had this assumption for a long time that the poor are lazy or naive. The myth of the lazy welfare recipient turns out to be just that, a myth. There's a wonderful paper by Abhijit Banerjee and colleagues which looks at what happens when you give people cash. Do they stop working? And the answer is no. This is something that I think keeps coming up, though. I talk to people about just the idea of universal basic income, and they say that it strikes them as just un-American, that we had this capitalist system and the idea of just giving money seems against so much of what they've learned of what the U.S. is, is all about. I talked to Charlene Burke. She's a small business owner who lives near Louisville, Kentucky, and she really had a strong initial reaction to this. I'm in the USA, and we have a, a Puritan view if you will, a work ethic, an independent streak, and I tend to lean that way, that just giving somebody something for nothing in return 
means that what you're giving essentially loses its value in the eyes of the recipient. I'm curious just to get your reaction to that sentiment. I'm sure you've heard it before, that you're just giving people something for nothing, and what are they going to do with that? I think it's a really common view, and one that's worthy of a lot of introspection of where it comes from. And I think it comes from a different place for a lot of us, whether it's the fact that our view on poverty is affected by the homeless person on the corner with a brown paper bag, whether our view of poverty has been impacted by the push against the welfare queen, or this, the Puritan work ethic, which you'll hear a lot, which is you need to work to have meaning. And even that's an interesting statement because what is work? Is work the activity by which you define yourself, the productive activity by which you define yourself, or is it the thing you get paid for? But I think in the U.S., we would say that work defines us. You go to a party, that is the first question people ask you, oh, what do you do? And so if we're in a situation where, well, maybe the jobs aren't there or we're not doing anything, how does that play into your identity? I think that's a real kind of issue with this, of it sounding great on paper, but how does it actually play out in the real world? Well, I think it comes back to this definition of work. If I stay at home and take care of my kids, is that work? It may not be the first thing you say at the party, but it is certainly a productive activity that you would take meaning from, that's contributing to society. And even that's interesting. If I take care of someone else's child and get paid for it, it's work in the traditional sense. If I take care of my own child, it may not be considered work in a lot of people's mind. And you talk about the common view or this common maybe resistance towards UBI, but if you go to my neck of the woods, which is Silicon Valley, it seems like the tech community has kind of universally, no pun intended, embraced universal basic income. How do you feel about the fact that the tech community is kind of looking at programs like Give Directly, like what Sam Altman is doing in Oakland as a proof of concept for implementing this around the world? I think it's great. The thing about basic income is that it's bipartisan. There's support from the conservative agenda. It's an efficient way of distributing benefits. There's support from the more liberal side of the political spectrum. This is not a tech thing. I think it has often been popularized and associated with tech because the picture or photo of the robot is quite appealing. But this is by no means a tech-only concept. It goes back to Moore, Payne, Martin Luther King, Milton Friedman, even Nixon. If there's anything I want to communicate broadly is that UBI is not simply a tech idea. The tech community, like you said, seems to be fascinated with UBI and it could potentially solve issues that are not too distant future in the workplace. In 2015, more than 43 million Americans lived below the official poverty level and 8.6 of them were considered a part of the working poor. So they had full-time jobs, but were still below the poverty level. Where are our current systems failing these people and what could UBI do to help people not tomorrow with the robots, but today with the current America that we're living in? I come at it from the international context where you're thinking not just of domestic spend, but also international aid flows. And there's a lot that can be done. Brookings recently estimated that it would cost about $70 billion to eliminate poverty, to close the poverty gap. And it is an arithmetic estimate with all sorts of caveats, but it's a powerful one because we spend about $135 billion on international aid. So we're spending nearly twice as much as it would cost to close the poverty gap if we could magically transfer cash to everyone that was below the poverty line. Now, if that doesn't motivate us to rethink the aid system, to rethink social spending, then I don't know what does. 
it sounds so simple on paper. Are you optimistic that we'll actually see a shift, though, from these aid programs to actually giving people cash? I mean, will we see that shift in the U.S.? We're starting to see a shift in the rhetoric. I don't know how long it will be until we see a shift in action. And I think that's going to have to be motivated by the public. You now have an opportunity to give directly to an individual through Give Directly. You can go online and send a transfer to an individual. You don't need to wait for the aid system to change. And I think once you see the public shifting in that direction, you'll slowly see the sector shifting. There's been very little disruption in the way we do philanthropy, welfare, aid, whatever you want to call it. If you look at the five largest nonprofits in the U.S., the youngest one is from 1910. If you look at the five largest corporates in the U.S., the oldest one is from 1974, Microsoft. So in one market, you have this disruption, this evolution. How do we serve our customer better? In another market, you don't see that evolution of how you serve the customer, who is ultimately the recipient, the person living in poverty, better. Cash transfers and the notion that we should challenge the sector and say, do better than just giving cash to the poor. And if we can't do better than that, let's start transferring them the capital because we now have the opportunity to end extreme poverty. I spent a little bit of time on the border of West Virginia and Ohio. And I talked to a woman uh, named Liz McElvain. She runs a large pottery company. They employ about 850 people in the region. They produce Fiesta Ware, which is this kind of colorful pottery in a lot of American homes. And this region has been plagued by unemployment. And so I asked her if paired with community projects, if she thought UBI might be a good solution in a place like hers. And she had a really kind of strong reaction to that. No, I don't think so. That's dumbing us down. People have to have a goal and everybody can't be the same. It it never is going to be that way. People have to strive to do better. People have to strive to achieve. And, And yes, Well, you've seen it. We've got people who set up machines and run machines, and then you have another job that, you know, maybe moving where from one part of the plant to another. So basically she's saying, you know, people have to have a goal. Everybody can't be the same. Her fear with something like UBI is that it does. Everybody gets the same amount of money. They can do with it what they please. How do you respond to that? We're doing UBI in the village in Kenya. And yes, everybody is getting the same amount of money. But I don't think by any stretch would you say everybody is the same. In fact, that's the power of cash, which is that everybody is different. One person will need it to buy a new net or fishing boat to start a fishing business. Another person may use it to send their kids to school. Another person may fix their house. If everybody was truly the same, we can just buy the same gift for anyone. The gift buying problem that we go through in the welfare system wouldn't be so complicated. So I think behind her question is this issue of motivation. She worries it wouldn't be there. But it sounds like that's not what you found in Africa. I have a more optimistic view on people and believe in intrinsic motivation. I think we all know a lot of people that aren't working on their passion project for money. Once you give someone the money to meet the minimum floor, and that's not a lot in Kenya. That's 75 cents a day. That's enough to feed your family and put a roof over their head. It can free the mind where you're not choosing to work just to feed your family. That's uninspiring. It's choosing to work because you're striving, because you have higher ambitions and you can dream in life. What we're talking about right now really comes back to this idea of what is the American dream. So for you, 
how do you think UBI would change the American dream? What is it now and what could it be with this system intact in the country? I think a universal basic income or providing enough to meet your basic needs really can free you from the shackles of surviving. I don't think requiring people to work to survive is where we should be headed. I don't think that's what people talk about when they talk about striving or motivation or deeper meaning in life. Simply going to work to survive is not enough. And we need to think about how we move past that. Do you expect in the U.S. whether we'll see more of this soon? Are there other cities that you're watching? What are some of the next events on the horizon that we should be watching for in this world of UBI or that may necessitate it? I'd like to see local state governments start to do more and more UBI pilots, which I think are feasible. I think when you look at the national scale, a UBI in the traditional long-term universal sense is probably a ways away. The cost of it relative to the federal budget now is really infeasible. And I think you can take those principles and go a long distance without even getting to UBI in the short term and see great improvements. And I actually think those are principles that across the aisle, people would agree on. That was Michael Fay talking to us about his nonprofit, Give Directly, and his thoughts on universal basic income. What really fascinated me about our conversation with Michael is just how outdated and unfounded some of our ideas about the poor are. What they need to make decisions effectively is cash, not a voucher, not some kind of handout. They just need money to escape the cycle of poverty. And what Michael is seeing on the ground in Kenya is already upending our thoughts about the spending habits of the working poor. The people that he's giving money to directly aren't using it on unproductive things. They're using it to build their business or to get the medicine that they need. And like you said, that's the power of cash. It allows everyone to use it for what they need most. I still think, though, there's a big divide between what his pilot program is doing in Kenya and how this could then apply to the U.S., which is a much different economy. Right. And there are some cultural barriers that could prevent UBI from scaling across America. And very few people are really testing out that concept directly here in the U.S. But if anyone has a glimpse about what UBI could mean for Americans in the future, it would be our next guest, Elizabeth Rhodes. Elizabeth is heading up Y Combinator's relatively secret universal basic income pilot in Oakland right now. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Thanks. It's great to be here. I know that you can't talk about specifics right now, but what can you tell us about the pilot and what's happening in Oakland right now, which is in the East Bay close to San Francisco? We have a very small pilot going right now, really just starting to test out some of the logistics of how do we pay people, how do we survey and get information from them about how this works and doesn't work. So really, it's preparing us for a much larger multi-state study where we will be giving a basic income of about $1,000 a month for several years to individuals. And we're learning, I mean, really, as I said before the pilot, we're sort of scaling up in phases. We're just enrolling a few people at a time just to sort of learn. It's a complicated figuring out how to pay people and how it works with existing benefits and working with the, the state governments to get waivers and things like that is a really complex process. And so we're really working through a lot of those issues now in preparation for a larger study. $1,000 a month. I don't really know where that would get me or how far that would get me in Oakland, rather, given the high cost of living. So why that amount and what is that supposed to cover? The federal poverty level for an individual is 12600 something, somewhere around there. So it's, it's very close to the federal poverty level for an individual. In Oakland and in San Francisco, it doesn't get you much. And that's why the larger study is going to be in a much broader geographic area. You know, the cost of living is much lower. I mean, $1,000 
certainly helps in the Bay Area, but it's not going to let you quit your job and sit around and do nothing. So the goal with universal basic income isn't for people to stop working, right? As you know, so many people find a lot of value and meaning in their work. And if UBI does something that is implemented throughout the country and a lot of people are getting basic income, it could mean that they're also working less. So have you thought or envisioned how people are going to find meaning in a world in which UBI is something that's part of their lives? One of the critiques of the sort of automation view is that some tasks might be automated, but if you look in history, then new opportunities were created. The Industrial Revolution created new fields that we can't even think about right now. So the idea that all jobs are going to disappear may not happen. What is not in question is if we have these new opportunities, they're going to require possibly different skills than we have right now. So the process of retraining for something else is not cost-free, right? Basic income, for example, could provide the resources to pursue that training, be able to afford childcare. It can be sort of a means to like developing skills for a different type of job. Talk to me a little bit about the cultural implications of universal basic income and how we could get people who seem to be just vehemently against it on board people would still work for money. So you might be starting from a different base. You might have certain needs taken care of, which might actually allow someone who can't keep a job because they don't have reliable transportation or childcare. In some ways, it could enable people to keep jobs. So the idea that everyone's going to quit their job and the GDP is going to drop is not quite accurate. First of all, you're putting money in the hands of people who will spend it. So it could have a stimulus effect in like local areas and just on the economy in general. I think the only way to really start to convince people, though, is to have data. I mean, you know, maybe I'm a little bit biased because that's the thing that convinces me. But I think really being able to show if there are benefits to this. So talk to me about what we can expect from your program moving forward. And what are your goals with being able to show exactly that? We see this very much as a first step. We're starting with a very individual level study. If we give $1,000 a month to this individual, what happens? And we're looking at things like time use, subjective well-being, health, financial health, you know, a whole wide variety of child outcomes. And we'll be able to begin to say, okay, this is sort of the individual and household level effects. The idea of what would happen if you give it to everyone in like an entire city, it's something we aren't able to do with this study just because we don't have the money to provide an income to everyone in an entire metropolitan area. But if results are positive here, then there are next steps. And if anyone is able to answer that question, I think it is you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us in Work in Progress. Thanks for having me. Caroline, we heard a lot about UBI today. It's an idea that on paper makes so much sense. But I keep coming back to a bigger issue that UBI may not solve, and that's the role of work in our lives. And I do think that that is a central question that we keep coming back to in this podcast. But we have to keep in mind that this idea of finding meaning through your work is really a privileged notion. A new study by the New America Foundation found that unless you make $150,000 a year, you're not really looking for meaning in your work. You're looking for stability and security, something that, as we discussed today, is not being met by most of the frontline jobs in America. So I wonder really if we have to be concerned as much as we are with what life would look like without work. I think that's right. Our economy is so tied up in work that people's identities are still very much tied to what they do. So I just worry about when we do separate work from income, what that means to how people identify themselves, who they are. But let's be clear, when we're talking about universal basic income, it's not like this would mean that all the jobs would suddenly go away. There will be jobs in the future that people will find meaning and identity and productivity through. It just might mean that those jobs look differently than they do today. 
Mark Cuban recently was on stage talking about how he's not concerned about the digital revolution because he knows that in the future, if jobs are being replaced, there are going to be more jobs that are going to be created by technology. The question is, how easy is it to get those jobs? And will we still need to do them for 40 hours a week? Will they still be part of your whole life as they are today? So that's why I think we just need more scrutiny, more research on this idea. I met David Crone. He's a mathematician and physical chemist who has worked for 30 years in risk management and at large financial institutions. But he's been out of work. He's been unemployed looking for a new job. I asked him about this idea of UBI, and he had a really interesting perspective on it. You know, before 1935, we didn't have a social security system in America, and that was considered un-American when it was first proposed. It took some time. Medicare, when it went into place, had a lot of fight. Work plays such a big part in his own life, and while he's looking for a new position now, he says he just couldn't imagine really having a day without work. There was a very funny cover of Newsweek in uh, summer of 1972. It showed an image of Charlie Chaplin uh, sprawled over a set of gears and wrenches. And the title of the magazine that week was Who Wants to Work? Could Americans Do Without Work? I don't think so. The idea of self-promotion and working to improve oneself comes along with work. They go hand in hand. So I think for most Americans, they would like a better life, but they cannot imagine not working in order to get there. And so what I wonder is whether we need the kind of same research and kind of intensity around this that we're seeing now from efforts like what Y Combinator is doing into an idea around kind of universal jobs. You know, what if we had a startup accelerator just addressing that idea of what happens if we just give people a job or make it a lot easier to get one and then see how that helps to change their lives or help them to get to a different position in the economy? Thank you for listening. If you like what you are hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we discussed here today on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter and his travels all around America talking to workers about working today, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This show is produced by Florencia Ariando and David Pond. We'll see you next week.